woman really do that? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 118, Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. My friend, welcome to Verbal Diorama. I am anxiously expecting you at the Borgo Pass. My carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust your journey from your app has been a happy one and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful podcast. Your friend, Em. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Welcome back to all you wonderful, amazing returning listeners and welcome to all brand new listeners to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here, no matter how you're here. It's just great that you are here, especially for this episode. And I know I always say that, but I'm really super excited to bring you Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is a long time coming on this podcast. And a huge thank you to everyone who listened to previous episodes of this podcast, who listened to most recent episodes, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and also Slither as well. And as I said, this episode has been such a long time coming. It's one of those that I've held off on purpose because it's got so much of the stuff that I love in it and that Verbal Diorama loves in it. And I've always felt that on this podcast, I never want to show my aces too early. And I really feel like 118 episodes later, during Halloween season as well, is the right time to showcase Bram Stoker's Dracula and pretty much the impact it's had on my life since I first saw it as a teenager. Um, And I'm going to jump straight in, really, because the trailer for Bram Stoker's Dracula is coming up and I know that you've probably crossed oceans of time to find it. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. And met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. Can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is 
The devil's concubine! Join me in the eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. Yeah! I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. mistake. He must be stopped. Young solicitor Jonathan Harker, engaged to be married to the spirited Mina Murray, is assigned to a real estate transaction of an Eastern European Count, Dracula. He is captured and imprisoned by the otherworldly Dracula, who is inspired by a photograph of Mina, who bears a striking resemblance to his late wife, Elisabetta. After capturing Jonathan in his castle, Dracula sails to Britain and begins seducing Mina, who receives word that her husband has escaped his prison and is taking sanctuary at a convent, and travels to Romania to marry him. Enraged, Dracula drains the life of Mina's closest friend, Lucy, and turns her into a vampire. Professor Abraham Van Helsing is enlisted to help stop the legendary monster who still yearns to make Mina his bride. Let's go through the cast of this movie. This is an incredible cast, actually. I mean, I don't even need to tell you it's an incredible cast because it genuinely is an incredible cast. Gary Oldman as Count Dracula, aka Vlad the Impaler. Winona Ryder as Mina Harker and Elisabetta. Anthony Hopkins as Professor Abraham Van Helsing and the priest and also narrates as well. Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker. Richard E. Grant as Dr. Jack Seward. Kerry Elwes as Lord Arthur Holmwood. Billy Campbell as Quincy P. Morris. Sadie Frost as Lucy Westenra. Tom Waits as Renfield. And Monica Bellucci, Michaela Berku and Florina Kendrick as Dracula's Brides. The screenplay for Bram Stoker's Dracula was by James V. Hart. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and it was based on Dracula by Bram Stoker, of course. So in 1816, Lord Byron rented the Villa Diodati in the village of Cologne near Lake Geneva in Switzerland between June to November. A series of personal scandals had rendered Byron unable to return to England. In May of that year, he befriended Percy by Shelley, who was travelling with his future wife, Mary Godwin, and they rented a villa nearby. And Byron and his friend and physician, John William Polidori, stayed at Villa Diodati. The weather was unseasonably cold and stormy, with incessant rain, and when the two groups got together at the Villa Diodati, the Shelleys ended up staying three days due to the bad weather. During this time, the five of them, which is including Mary Godwin's stepsister, would make up fantastical ghost stories as part of a contest. Two famous stories emerged from this competition. One became Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, first published in 1818, and the other was John William Polidori's The Vampire, first published in 1819. 
The vampire is often viewed as the progenitor of the romantic vampire genre and would influence many vampire-based novels going forward, most famously Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula. However, Stoker's version of the character is now seen as the archetypal vampire legend and the creator of many of the vampire tropes that we now see as canonical to vampire and Dracula legend. Coincidentally, Francis Ford Coppola would also co-produce 1994's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was directed by Kenneth Branagh. The name Dracula was chosen by Stoker as he perused Whitby's public library, as he mistakenly believed it to be the Romanian word for devil. It is close, though. Dracula literally means son of Dracul, and Dracul means devil, derived from the Latin Draco, meaning dragon. Dragons being historically associated with Satan. The legend of Dracula is based on the real Vlad the Impaler, aka Vlad Tepes, aka Vlad III, the Prince of Wallachia, now Romania, in the 1400s. Vlad had a reputation for cruelty, overseeing the murder of tens of thousands of people. Vlad's father was Vlad Dracul, named for his membership of the Order of the Dragon, and Vlad is Vlad Dracula, son of Dracul, and that's where the name Dracula comes from. And of course, Bram Stoker's novel is one of the most famous pieces of English literature. It's been studied for its themes, narrative style and composition for over a century. And its influence on literature and the legacy of the vampire canon it's created is pretty much unrivaled. But this isn't a podcast on the history and legacy of Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula, and or the legend of Vlad the Impaler. Although, undoubtedly, a whole podcast on the topic could not do the character or novel justice. And so instead, I'm going to try and do justice to Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel and it's a story ingrained in Coppola's life since his teens. The story goes that age 17, young Francis Ford Coppola worked as a camp counsellor. His girlfriend at the time had the same job, but for a rival camp. So he could see her, young Francis would read the campers chapters of Bram Stoker's Dracula so they'd go to sleep and he could abscond. It's hardly sleep-inducing stuff, but the young Francis loved Dracula movies, often going to see them with his older brother. Their favourites were 1948's Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, with Dracula played by Bela Lugosi, and John Carradine as Dracula in 1944's House of Frankenstein and 1945's House of Dracula. But none of these movies actually adapted Stoker's novel, just used an interpretation of the character of Dracula. It was Coppola's work on The Godfather Part 3 that started the chain of events for his version of Dracula. Winona Ryder had been set to play the character of Mary Corleone, but dropped out at the last minute due to nervous exhaustion. The role was ultimately given to Coppola's daughter, director Sofia Coppola, a performance that has been much criticised, similarly to a performance in this movie. Ryder wanted to clear the air with Coppola, believing that he disliked her after she left production of The Godfather Part 3, and brought to his attention James V. Hart's script. And as soon as he saw it was a Dracula adaptation, he was immediately interested. And regular listeners to this podcast will probably remember the name James V. Hart, or Jim Hart, as he was known for his script in the episode on Hook. Coppola's production company, Zoetrope, was struggling financially at the time due to delays and overruns on his previous projects, Apocalypse Now and One from the Heart, and it was hoped that The Godfather Part 3 would save it from financial ruin. The original plans for Hart's screenplay were for it to be made into a TV movie directed by Michael Apted. Apted would go on to executively produce this version of Dracula with Coppola in the director's chair. And for Coppola, 
His idea for this movie, which he was given $40 million to make, was that Dracula was written at the same time as the early cinema was invented. So what if he made Dracula much in the same way that the earliest cinema practitioners would have made Dracula? He wanted to make it as a passion project, but also hoped that it would help the finances of his ailing production company. Then to do it the way that he wanted to do it meant renouncing any sort of CG or digital VFX. And so when the standard visual effects team he hired told Coppola that the things he wanted to do were impossible to achieve without the use of digital effects, he fired them immediately. And he also replaced them with his son, Roman Coppola, who literally began his visual effects and second unit directing career on Bram Stoker's Dracula, but more on the special effects. And when I say more, I mean more in a little bit. Winona Ryder, being the introducer of the script, became the ideal casting choice for Mina Murray and was fascinated by the repressed sexuality of women in that era and she loved the emotional love story at the core. Sadie Frost didn't originally audition but Coppola struggled to find an actress to play Lucy and saw her role in Diamond Skulls and offered her the part. She dyed her brown hair red to distinguish herself from Winona Ryder's Mina. Gary Oldman, who's well known for transforming into roles, was delighted to not only work with Coppola, a man he considered one of the great American directors, but also get his first leading role in a big American production. He did have a supporting role in Oliver Stone's JFK the previous year. Liam Neeson was in the running for the role of Abraham Van Helsing until Anthony Hopkins showed interest in the role. Hopkins literally just come off winning an Oscar for The Silence of the Lambs, so was a real coup for the production, as was Keanu Reeves. And I know everyone gives Keanu stick for this movie. I'm not going to say it's his greatest role or anything, but Coppola wanted a heartthrob, someone more than Johnny Depp. Christian Slater would turn the role down and he would re regret it too. But Coppola felt that Keanu was ideal for Jonathan Harker. And Keanu would later admit that he was burned out from working so much at the time and struggled with perfecting the accent. And even Coppola admits that Keanu just tried too hard. So I really do feel like we need to be less harsh on Keanu for this role. It's actually not as bad as people remember. A significant amount of the budget was invested in costumes, with Coppola describing the actors as the jewels of the feature, with graphic designer Eiko Ishioka, who had done some Japanese posters for Apocalypse Now, brought on board as costume designer, despite never doing film costuming before. Coppola had known Ishioka for 20 years and wanted someone whose designs he liked, as well as someone he trusted for the costuming. Ishioka would mix Eastern and Western cultures in her costume designs for Dracula, giving each item of clothing a rich, textured history, as well as a decadent surrealism. Ishioka removed the idea of Dracula's famed black cape, and instead bestowed the elderly Dracula with a flowing crimson robe that billows behind him as he walks. Lucy's dresses would reflect her wealth and social status, as well as her liberal sexuality and contrast to Mina's more demure, sophisticated and modest occupation and social standing. Mina and Elisabetta both wear green to link their characters and to signify love and frequently include leaves like rosemary, which symbolises love and fidelity, Red clothing signifies lust and sexual attraction as well as blood and both Lucy and Mina are clothed in red at certain points. Lucy as she wanders through the maze and is fed on by Dracula and Mina in a red gown as she dines and dances with this strange prince that she feels a connection to. And truly the costuming in Dracula deserves all the awards and Eiko Ishioka did receive the Academy Award for Best Costume Design for this movie. 
But really, Francis Ford Coppola himself was integral to the look of this movie. He planned each shot carefully and diligently, crafting storyboards with a thousand images, and even making an animated movie out of those images, adding music, scenes from Jean Cocteau's 1946 movie La Belle à la Bête, aka Beauty and the Beast, paintings done by Gustav Klimt, and showed the film to his designers so they could fully understand the gothic mysticism he was aiming to achieve. He didn't want to do a formulaic run-of-the-mill vampire story with black capes, white skin and widow's peaks. He wanted images steeped in the research of the era, as well as images that would genuinely scare the audience. Coppola's Dracula eschews any sense of realism or normalcy, and this is on purpose. Coppola wanted something weird. That was the actual word that he used during production. Give me weird, he'd request of his costume designer, hair and makeup, and production design. To keep the atmosphere as ominous as possible, 99% of the movie was shot on sound stages, so they could make use of lighting to create shadows. Not much was shot on location or externally, except the Mina and Jonathan marriage scene, which took place at a Greek Orthodox church in Los Angeles by a real Orthodox priest, meaning that technically Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are married in real life, but I don't want to dwell on that right now. The many prosthetic forms that Dracula himself would take on meant that Gary Oldman had to be completely devoted to the character, and Gary Oldman is an actor that's known for his method acting because he genuinely was devoted to this character. He was on set three weeks before filming commenced to work with the makeup team on looks for the various forms and gave feedback on whether he thought those looks worked. The most difficult look, a giant bat, didn't convince Oldman that he was scary enough. And this was where Coppola instructed him to whisper terrifying things to people off camera to scare them. Oldman did just that, and in the more erotic scenes, it was said that he whispered things so filthy that they've never, ever been repeated. I actually do kind of want to find out what he said. He even hired a voice coach to lower his voice by an octave to give it the spooky tone that he wanted. His hairline was shaved to make the makeup application easier for the older count and to give him the distinctive beehive hairdo. Hair and makeup designer Michelle Burke drew on her Catholic upbringing for inspiration for the makeup looks. And while there were reports on set of Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder not getting on, she has attributed this to the fact that she was young and he was an intense older actor going through a divorce at the time and the set was very heated. But she does insist that the two are good friends now. The love story between Dracula and Mina never formed part of Stoker's original novel, Coppola wanted to make this a tragic, erotically charged love story, emphasis on tragic, erotic and love, because this Dracula is a sexy Dracula and changed the way that the character was viewed. Dracula would seduce as often as he would feed. He was a monster in every sense of the word. He violated Lucy Westerner in her garden, but he would also literally cross oceans to find the reincarnation of his deceased wife, but similarly, he was wooing her while her husband was trapped in his castle back in Transylvania. His prisoner, Jonathan Harker, would be routinely seduced and, you know, let's be honest here, raped by Dracula's brides. Because vampirism equals sex. Drinking blood equals sex. Literally everything in this movie is horny as hell, excuse the pun, but the character of Dracula isn't meant to be the lead in his own adult movie. He's supposed to be a tragic hero who rebels against God after his wife commits suicide upon falsely learning he has died in battle. Because suicide is classed as sinful, her soul is damned and cannot enter heaven. Because of this, he renounces God and becomes cursed. He doesn't pursue Mina because he wants to spite Jonathan. He does it because he thinks it's destiny. 
that his true love has returned to him. In the original script, after Mina kills Dracula at the end by driving a knife into his heart, she exits the castle and into the arms of Jonathan Harker as they walk off together into the sunset, which at the test screening elicited boos and yells. Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman had to actually be called back to reshoot the scene and have Mina cut off Dracula's head to finally set his soul free. And there are shots in that final scene in the movie that are filmed almost a year apart and you would not know because it's really that good. Coppola specifically wanted an erotic dream of a movie, a movie made like it would have been made in the early days of cinema, and a movie with no digital effects. His son Roman may not have had movie-making experience, but he did have an infatuation with traditional magic. Standard illusions like 50-50 mirrors and reversing shots of dry ice lit by green lights and using angles and reflections. It's simple tactics, really. Almost every filmmaking trick of the last 100 years was used on this movie, including rear projection, reverse motion, matte paintings, miniature effects, front projection, forced perspective, filming at angles and upside down, and multiple exposures. Francis Ford Coppola stated that his son Roman was the real hero of Dracula and was surprised that the visual effects weren't honoured at awards season, but noted that perhaps the lack of an Academy Award nomination was industry bias and a 24-year-old newcomer's obvious talent with practical on-camera effects. But then, he's his dad, he would say that. Roman Coppola would be nominated for a BAFTA, but would lose that to Jurassic Park. Other things like shadows acting of their own accord, displaying the unnatural laws of Dracula's domain, were directly inspired by F.W. Murnau's 1922 classic Nosferatu in both cinematography and visual design. Dracula rising from his coffin is also inspired by Nosferatu. There are so many wonderful visual shots in this movie. It would actually be impossible for me to go through every single one and talk about all of them. But I wanted to go through some really fascinating little tidbits of information about some selected set pieces and about how they achieved the shots. But literally every single visual effect in this movie is absolutely sublime. Genuinely, some of the best practical visual effects that you will ever see in cinema is in this movie. So as Jonathan Harker is on a train bound for Dracula's castle, he writes in his diary. The diary is shown on screen with the train above. This was achieved by a 24th scale model train. It was shot behind a huge diary and the shadows of the train smoke were achieved by placing a light behind the model, which cast a shadow on the diary. As Jonathan sits in the train carriage, Gary Oldman's eyes appear in the sky. Oldman's eyes were projected as the only source of light onto the background behind the train. After arriving in Transylvania, Harker is met by Dracula's carriage and the driver who is Dracula in disguise, also played by Gary Oldman, seems to magically reach out and lift Harker into the carriage. This shot was achieved by having the rider sitting on a camera crane, which reached out and brought him towards Reeves. At the same time, the camera has moved to the right, so it appeared as if the rider's hand wasn't actually stretching, but simply defying physics. For the lift, Reeves was also standing on a fake floor, which was a movable rostrum, which raised him up into the carriage. When Dracula enters Jonathan's room, there is no reflection in the mirror. However, the mirror isn't there. It's actually just a hole in the wall with Keanu Reeves playing Jonathan's reflection and a body double the other side. So when the hand touches Jonathan's shoulder, no hand is seen on the reflection. It's such an effective shot and so easy to do. As Dracula is shaving Jonathan, the walls of the room gradually move in to give you a feeling of claustrophobia. When rats appear to run upside down on a girder above Jonathan Harker in the castle, two passes were used. In the first, the camera was upside down, 
with the black mat covering the top of the lens as rats ran across a piece of set. Then the camera was turned upright, the film was rewound and the other half of the lens was exposed while the original portion was covered as Reeves was burned into the negative. The scene with the vampire Lucy is cast back into a coffin by Van Helsing was played in reverse, making her motion unnatural and demonic. All of these beautiful practical effects and there's nothing digital. Well, there is one digital effect in this movie that's why I said it's 99% practical effects. The blue flame effect outside Dracula's castle is the only digital effect in this movie. It's something that's also in the novel as well, but it's quite impressive that that is literally the only digital effect in this movie. This is the definitive Dracula movie for so many people. Its legacy is undeniable. It avoided the classic vampire tropes and instead created its own tropes. It proved that classic monster horror genre was worthy of big production values, lavish costuming and A-list stars. It's rather a shame, actually, that nothing else Dracula-wise has lived up to this adaptation. The only thing that comes close for me is Netflix's animated Castlevania show, which has three seasons. It's a really fantastic show and really well worth your time if you are interested in Castlevania, obviously, and if you also like animated shows as well, it is genuinely one of the best. So let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this movie. Um, I wonder what the Keanu reference is going to be. But to be honest, for the obligatory Keanu reference, I just really wanted to say that Keanu's performance in this movie is mostly ridiculed. It's also called one of the worst movie miscastings ever, but I honestly don't think it's that bad. I mean, you can call it bias if you like. You can see he's really trying. And, you know, God loves a trier. So let's be nicer to Keanu about this movie because this movie is not made worse by him. It's kind of not made better by him, but it's also not made worse by him. So I just really wanted to shout out Keanu for giving it his all in this role and for being probably one of the best versions of Keanu playing Jonathan Harker that he could ever be. So the music in Bram Stoker's Dracula was composed by Washek Killer, except the theme song played over the end credits. That is Love Song for a Vampire, which was written and performed by the legendary Annie Lennox. And it was a double A side with her song Little Bird as well. Unlike most horror movies, Dracula had quite extensive merchandise, including a novelization, which I had, Various action figures, replicas of Quince's knife and Dracula's sword, a board game, a pinball machine, and also video games as well. A four-issue comic book with art by Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame. I've done both of those Hellboy movies on this podcast, episodes 38 and 39. And a script derived almost entirely from the movie script came out between October 1992 and January 1993. And it was the first ever comic book series from the company Topps Comics. The movie Bram Stoker's Dracula was released on the 13th of November 1992 in the US and as I said it was made on a 40 million dollar budget and Bram Stoker's Dracula would make almost all of its budget back, about 38 million dollars, in its first week of release which was a November record at the time and it also opened at number one in the box office. The following week it was bombed down to second place by Home Alone 2 Lost in New York it would go on to gross $82.5 million domestically and $133.3 million worldwide for a total gross of $215.8 million, making it the ninth highest grossing film of the year worldwide in 1992, 
I mean, we've talked critically about Keanu, so I feel like I don't really want to dwell on that again, just mainly because it hurts my soul. But generally, everyone can agree that Gary Oldman's count is universally praised, as are the costumes, makeup, production design. This is a truly stunningly beautiful movie with a great performance by Gary Oldman. And really, Bram Stoker's Dracula, as I say, remains a landmark in vampire and Dracula cinema for many reasons, but mostly that it's the only adaptation of Dracula to win Oscars. It won three for Best Costume Design, Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Makeup. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction. It would also be nominated for, for BAFTAs. Best Special Visual Effects, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hair and Best Production Design, but it would unfortunately not take any of those home. It also won five out of its nominated ten Saturn Awards as well. And there are no sequels to Dracula, and surprisingly, although I'm sure The Asylum probably has one. However, a Blumhouse-produced remake is apparently in the works after the success of The Invisible Man. It's set to be directed by Karen Kusama, and it will be a contemporary spin, as well as a faithful adaptation. There's also an adaptation of Last Voyage of the Demeter, focusing on the seventh chapter of Stoker's novel, aboard the ship the Demeter, as it makes its doomed voyage to London. And there's also a Renfield movie on the way too, which is going to be directed by Dexter Fletcher. So let's move on to social media thoughts. So we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast, and we're going to start with Ian. And Ian says... It was the first 18-rated film I saw at the cinema. I must have been 15 at the time. Old man, I'm really old. I enjoyed the film, thought Keanu was a brilliant lead actor as he played it like a fish out of water. Gary Oldman is anything that man can't make you believe. A great actor. I suppose my only issue is that the film gets a little boring for around the last third of the film. I seem to remember the chasing is less interesting than the opening of the story. Also, I sort of did it by Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing. Maybe it was the accent. And we also have a comment from perennial commenter Andy. And Andy says, Dracula is a visual feast for the eyes. It amazes that it's reliant on old-timey visual effects and camera tricks, while still showing off blockbuster budget art direction and scoring. My biggest quibble about this movie, and why it's fun to watch, is how spectacularly miscast every member of the supporting cast is. You're going to kill me, Em, but Keanu's I am going to Budapest accent is tough to listen to, coupled with Billy Campbell's idea of what Europeans think Texans sound like. Winona Ryder's breathy Mina, whose sole purpose in the film really seems to change from moment to moment, and Anthony Hopkins, fresh off winning an Oscar, who lays the Hungarian, German, European accent on thick, including within his own narration. Gary Oldman does shine, however, in this film as a lovelorn vampire who will usher in the 90s era of horny vampire films. A joy to watch, especially when you've got a lot that you can tease but still enjoy. And Andy is one of the hosts of the excellent podcast Geek Salad. It is your one-stop shop for all of your geeky, trivia, nerdy, brilliant, wonderful podcasting needs. I will pop some information in the show notes. Make sure that you have a listen to Geek Salad. They are a terrific podcast. We also have another patron comment from Claudia who simply says, Whoa. I mean, that, that just kind of sums this movie up. Whoa. And we have a double comment now, technically, because they're actually from the same podcast. So we're going to start with Derek. And Derek says, I have so many thoughts. Another one covered by the Midnight Mist. Vampire-like creatures have existed in folklore for thousands of years. The tradition of Dracula in the 19th century cemented the modern conception of the vampire. 
Coppola adapts this tradition for modern audiences by making Dracula even more sympathetic, having his fall from Christian knight to master of darkness on earth to avenge his love. Thematically, this is both psychosexual in nature while representing the cyclical nature of trauma. War took Vlad's humanity, the death of his wife took his soul, hence by creating more vampires, mostly attractive females I might add, he repeats his trauma over and over, and the only respite is his earthly demise. And Laurel adds to this by saying, We'll add to Derek's excellent comments by driving home the incredible feat of Coppola's direction. Not only does he succeed with the fantastic in-camera effects and early cinema techniques, he pulls off the gothic genre perfectly. It's Heidendayesque, but not parody. And your use of the word sublime is so apt. A feature of romantic gothic literature is the sublime, a phantasmagoria, a great and terrible beauty, and a fearful awe that we find ourselves drawn to. Dracula himself, in a nutshell. And if you would like more intellectual and brilliant thoughts such as those two, then you should listen to Derek and Laurel's podcast, It's the Midnight Myth. It is the podcast that looks at philosophy, mythology and history and how those topics bubble up into contemporary pop culture. I will pop some information about the Midnight Myth in the show notes. And we're going to move over to Twitter and we're going to start with at Alice Oliver TV, who says... Amazing, this was the film I chose for my first ever episode as co-host for Just Films and That. And at Movies Work says, oh, I think you know my thoughts. And basically what Tom means is that I actually went on their podcast, which is Movies After Work, a couple of years ago to talk about this movie. And we had a lot of fun recording that episode. Moving over to Instagram, we have Julio at Contrarian Prime, who said... I've grown to absolutely love this movie, mainly because it's just so bonkers and Coppola is just swinging for the fences on every frame. I don't mind too much that Keanu seems weighing over his head because the entire film is just one loud, crazy element after the other. That said, the love story doesn't work for me at all. Dracula is depicted as too monstrous for me to be invested in his relationship with his long-lost love and we don't get nearly enough of him as a regular human for me to connect to his love for his wife back then. So that's pretty impressive that I could be so into the filmmaking while not being engaged with the doomed romance at its heart. And at Stunt Goat Animation said, I watched it recently for the first time and was surprised how camp it was, almost pantomime at times. I was expecting it to be more serious, but parts of it seemed stupid. Visually it looked good though, I didn't think Keanu's accent was that bad. And no comments over on Facebook, but as always a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to give me some comments on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula can't really be called Coppola's masterpiece when this is the director who gave us the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now, but there's no doubt that Dracula is crafted using several innovative, risky ideas with in-camera effects, all without the benefit of modern computers or optical printing technology, providing a mythical, almost timeless feel. With the entirety of the film shot in studio, Coppola's intent was to create a film aesthetic reminiscent of when the novel was written, which meant excluding the use of green screens in favour of older film industry tricks. Dracula represents our internal darkness, which we are compelled not to explore because of its sinful nature. It added sexuality to the Dracula legend and shaped the vampire genre into the ongoing fascination that it remains today. Movies like Interview with the Vampire, even TV shows like Buffy, arguably wouldn't exist without the Bram Stoker's Dracula-shaped hole in pop culture. Movies like Crimson Peak, with its lavish costumes and colour schemes, invoke Dracula. Even What We Do in the Shadows owes a debt to this movie. 
Bram Stoker's Dracula, dripping in gorgeous visuals and colour, is unlike any other adaptation of the source material. It's aged like a fine wine, thanks to the wonderful practical visual effects. And this movie is almost operatic in its nature. And ultimately, this is a story about a broken nobleman losing the love of his life and gaining immortality due to a curse. This Dracula is sex, love and lust, and is tired of immortality and just wants to rekindle his long lost love. And ultimately, that love is what sets him free. Because love never dies, you see. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Bram Stoker's Dracula. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by retweeting or liking posts on social media. You can leave a rating or review, ideally five stars would be awesome, on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And you can also tell a friend or a family member about this episode or about this podcast in its entirety. And you can also help them to find a podcast app and download it and listen to it. That would also be similarly awesome. And if you did like this episode on Bram Stoker's Dracula, you might also like one of the following episodes of this podcast. So for all the grief that Keanu Reeves has got for his role in Dracula, I really wanted to recommend a Keanu Reeves movie. And the only movie that really springs to mind is Constantine. And mainly because although Constantine is nothing to do with vampires, it is based on the concept of heaven and hell and Catholicism and sin and renouncing God. And also contains a particular storyline about a character who commits suicide or is believed to have committed suicide and therefore cannot enter heaven. So it actually made quite a lot of sense to recommend episode 26 on Constantine. I also wanted to recommend a specific episode that I did on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Not the movie, an episode of the TV show. But there is actually an episode of Buffy, which is Buffy versus Dracula, which is episode one of season five. It is a very, very underrated episode of Buffy, just generally. I haven't done an episode of Buffy versus Dracula, although that would actually be quite a fun one to cover. But the episode that I did do, which was episode 22, is on the episode Hush. And Buffy as a whole, I would highly recommend because Buffy is obviously all about vampire slaying. So technically there are a lot of vampires in Buffy. But just as a, a single episode, that episode on Hush was a lot of fun to do. And it might introduce you to the world of Buffy. But absolutely, you should check out Buffy vs. Dracula. Episode 48, The Thing. And mainly that's because of the excellent practical effects. It's nothing to do with vampires, but excellent practical effects work. And I also wanted to recommend episode 66, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Because anything to recommend Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Because it's got a very, very sexy Billy Zane performance. It's not quite as overtly sexual and lust-filled as Gary Oldman, but it is quite sexy. So in my notes, I basically put Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, brackets, which is also quite sexy. And that is my justification for recommending that particular episode. As always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Did you think I got it right? Did you think I missed anything? Once just popped in my mind, I've missed the Monster Squad, which is episode 96. So yeah, check out The Monster Squad as well. The next episode is another movie that I've wanted to cover for absolutely ages. It is a perennial favourite at Halloween season in my house. And it's also very, very sex positive for a family-friendly movie. It is the wonderful Adams Family from 1991. 
The Adams Family is an absolute joy to behold. And yes, of course, I'm going to be doing Adams Family Values at some point, but not anytime soon. It's on my list. But just the first one for the time being. I adore The Adams Family and it's got a remarkable story behind the production too. So I'm really excited to bring you The Adams Family next week. If you want to follow me on social media, you want to talk to me about Bram Stoker's Dracula, then you can find me at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. If you want to support the show financially, you are under no obligation. You never are. But if you do want to, it's verbaldioramacom slash Patreon. A huge thank you, as always, to the patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will and Jack. Absinthe is the aphrodisiac of the self. The green fairy who lives in the absinthe wants your soul, but you are safe with me. I have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. If you're interested in merch, it's going to be updated eventually. I'm working on it. I'm working on a lot of things at the moment. If you want to get in touch with me on email, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to the website, verbaldiorama.com. And I also write for film stories. I write for the magazine. I also write articles online as well. You can check those out at filmstories.co.uk. And finally... Come into these arms again And lay your body down The rhythm of this trembling heart Is beating Thank you.
Bye.